International Law and Sustainable Development, taught by me, Charlotte Siebergasser, at the University of Lucerne in Spring Term 2021. Episode 5 Sustainable Development and International Human Rights Law. In this episode, you will gain a fair understanding of the trade-offs inherent in international human rights law with regard to sustainable development. You will also gain a good understanding of the role of a human right to a healthy environment in the promotion of sustainable development. Introduction Human rights can be found in various global and regional conventions, charters or treaties alongside the fundamental rights as embedded in most, if not all, constitutions. While human rights differ quite greatly with regard to their scope and uh, design and orientation, depending on a region and the culture, in which they are embedded in, um, they typically have human beings at their very center. Typically, human rights are dealing with the protection of human beings against state power. Enforcement of human rights remains challenging. Reasons for this challenge can be found in the power, capability and knowledge symmetries between citizens and the states. But then also human rights issues can at times be quite complex. One such example can be found, for instance, in the right to family, um, in the political debate and discourse uh, globally with regard to family reunion when someone has uh, emigrated from their home state. Another example of the complexity of the issues at hand when dealing with human rights violations or potential human rights violations is, for example, child labor. How do you judge a, a situation when actually the only way how a child can be fed at the end of the day, is if that child actually goes and looks after the cows during the day instead of going to school. So how do you weigh and balance in such a situation the uh, bad impact of child labor on the overall well-being of a child? So there's always these gray areas where a simple black and white uh, situation is simply not uh, doesn't exist and so this renders um, oftentimes the enforcement of human rights a rather complex issue. Another reason why enforcement of human rights has proven to be rather challenging um, is as well as we've seen in, in previous episodes also the concept of state sovereignty. Given that human rights typically require interpretation and application to a specific situation in real life, there is uh, ample scope 
for uh, flexibility in the way how individual signatories of those treaties actually handle uh, compliance with human rights obligations. Given that the international community only has limited means for enforcing a certain interpretation of human rights obligations abroad, this basically means that the overall protection of human rights differs or varies quite greatly depending on uh, each individual signatory to one of these treaties. So the question here is how are human rights linked with sustainable development? Human Rights and the UN Sustainable Development Goals With regard to human rights and development, human rights protection can actually be both conducive to development and obstructive. Whether human rights are conducive or obstructive to development depends on the kind of concept of development applied. It depends on the time frame, whether we look at the short term or longer term effects, and it depends on the available alternatives. It is commonly agreed that human rights protection serves the promotion of the social and economic angles of sustainable development predominantly. This can be also witnessed or seen in the conventions of, international, of the International Labour Organization, ILO, but it is also clearly established in the meantime that human rights protection is critical for economic productivity. What's agreed to, to a lesser extent is actually how to balance the economic and social elements inherent in human rights protection. Side note, development and human rights, the capability approach. The so far most convincing definition of what development in the sense for uh, advancing uh, quality of life for human beings actually means um, to, in my opinion, it has been developed by Amartya Sen together with Martha Nussbaum. It puts an emphasis on individual freedom of choice and on the overall quality of life of human beings. And it's called the capability approach. The capability approach basically says that once um, the elementary needs of a person in, for, for living are met, Actually, uh, the goal of any policy regarding any development policy should be to um, broaden the uh, individual freedom of choice of a person. It will not describe a particular lifestyle or particular choices in life as being uh, the one way for all people to become happy in life and to experience actual development. Instead, it focuses on the importance of real freedoms in the assessment of a person's advantage. It also acknowledges individual differences in the ability to transform resources into valuable activities. One example here, for instance, if you have a guitar, 
um, not all persons uh, living on this planet will actually be able to do the same thing with this uh, guitar. So perhaps for one person the guitar might be a life savior and the person will become a very fulfilled and happy and productive musician, but another person will simply not be able to do anything with that guitar that makes sense for that person. So the capability approach actually acknowledges that uh, people are um, different and that they should have the right to choose for themselves what they uh, consider to be most beneficial for themselves. Part of that decision is also um, the way how materialistic and non-materialistic factors are balanced in the evaluation of human welfare. For instance, it might be just as important to have real good friends close by as it is important to have a uh, home. So ultimately, the capability approach is concerned with the distribution of opportunities within society. Among others, uh, the capability ha approach has actually inspired the Human Development Index, HDI, which um, aims at capturing actual uh, experienced development in, for human beings in a more accurate manner than simply uh, reduced to uh, gross national income. The capability approach can be used when faced with the difficult decision to give a preference to one of the three dimensions of sustainable development, particularly in the context of human rights protection. Very bluntly put, according to the capability approach, the one dimension should be given preference, which leads to a more equal distribution of opportunities within society and ultimately extends real freedoms um, of choice for individual people. Human rights and the environment. Are human rights and the protection of the environment reconcilable? There are circumstances in, in, under which uh, trade-offs between human rights protection and the protection of the environment may be unavoidable. In such uh, cases, what takes precedence? We have a tendency in the global uh, value system, but also in international law in general, that human rights in such instances take precedence. However, as has become increasingly clear, is that environmental harm interferes with the full enjoyment of human rights, uh, at least in the long term. The right to life, the right to enjoyment of physical and mental health, the right to adequate standard of living, the rights to food, water and housing, the right to property, the right to respect for private and family life, etc. are all affected by the environment. That in the long run, the protection of human rights actually depends on sufficient protection of the environment has been clear for quite a while now. 
the origins of the human right to the enjoyment of a safe, clean, healthy and sustainable environment actually date back to the 1960s. The first specific attempt at introducing the environment as a human right dates back to the 1990s and Amadeo uh, Bostiglione. He introduced the idea of a universal convention for the environment as a human right to the global stage. The proposed convention would have uh, entailed individual legal rights, a adequate level of information, participation and action for the protection of the environment and an international court for the environment. Another prominent initiative was promoted by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. They suggested an approach to environmental protection like uh, the one approach used also to uh, the protection of other fundamental rights. The idea was to introduce an obligation for public and private institutions to incorporate policies and processes based on the obligations set by international law. Generally, what the different initiatives have in common is a holistic approach to human health, which recognizes the role of the environmental degradation for human rights uh, immediately, but also in the long run. And this all led to a movement towards a global pact for the environment. The Global Pact for the Environment is based on a French proposal of 2017. The proposed uh, pact actually entails a right to live in an ecologically sound environment. And it would also integrate sustainability principles into international national development plans. Such principles would entail, for instance, the prevent and precaution principles, along with the non-regression principle, the polluter-pace principle, the public participation, uh, education and inclusion of non-state actors, and that all would be implemented by the United Nations. The pact is aiming at prevention of further harm to the environment rather than punishment for, uh, for actual harm. It is similar to the Sustainable Development Goals. It is based on the empowerment actually of non-state actors and uh, encompasses also a bottom-up approach. The negotiations were fairly far advanced with regard to this global pact for the environment, but failed ultimately in May 2019. They're still on the schedule of the agenda of the Stockholm Plus 50 conference, which should take place next year. The Global Pact for the Environment has been criticized on the basis of the fact that basically all the different principles and obligations can already be found somewhere in international law today. So the argument goes that basically everything that's part of the uh, Pact for the Environment is actually already part of international law, so the Pact for the Environment is ultimately redundant. However, 
it is clear today that the individual right to environment is not generally enforceable in wide parts of our world. And the hope would be that with this kind of pact for the environment, the kind of new framing of a right to live in a healthy environment, that this um, gap in the protection of human rights law would actually um, be mended. So the treaty actually offers a more coherent regulation of environmental governance uh, globally um, compared to the situation of today. It offers guidelines for the interpretation and minimum standards across sectors. It also uh, offers a definition of development priorities and it helps when encountering a conflict between the different dimensions of sustainable development in avoiding these conflicts and actually um, know how to solve trade-offs in a more sustainable manner. And finally, um, the Pact for the Environment would actually allow for the use of existing human rights instruments in order to challenge environmental damage, which would be a great advantage given that those uh, human rights instruments are already well established and embedded in local but also in global uh, law and uh, legal procedures. One step further, rights of nature. Some countries actually do not need to wait for a global pact for the environment in order to extend human rights protection to, um, uh, to the environment also. Especially, for instance, uh, Ecuador actually even went one step further by introducing a specific right of the nature. As you will have seen in your reading materials, there was a road widening project which led to rocks and excavation materials in a nearby river. The company undertaking this road widening project had actually not undertaken any environmental impact studies prior to starting to build um, in this place. The excavation materials and the rocks in the river actually increased river flow and therewith also increased the risk of floods which affected the people living riverside. Now the question was whether this project um, or this, this uh, road widening project was actually a violation of Article 71 of the Ecuadorian Constitution. Article 71 of the Ecuadorian Constitution um, translates as follows. Nature or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its life cycles, its structure, its functions and its evolutionary processes. All persons, communities, peoples and nations can call upon public authorities to enforce the rights of nature. To enforce and interpret these rights, the principles set forth in the constitutions shall be observed as appropriate. 
The state shall give incentives to natural persons and legal entities and to communities to protect nature and to promote respect for all the elements comprising an ecosystem. The Provincial Court of Loja um, ruling. The relevant parts in that uh, court decision regarding the road widening project um, read as follows. That based on a precautionary principle, until it is objectively demonstrated that a project undertaken in an established area does not lead to environmental damage, it is the responsibility of the constitutional judges to incline towards the immediate protection and the legal tutelage of the rights of nature. The recognition of the importance of nature raises the issue that damages to nature are generational damages, defined as such by their magnitude that impacts not only the present generation but also future ones. Using the principle of inversion of the burden of proof, the provincial government, as the entity that administers the the activity has to provide proof that the widening of the road does not affect the environment, that the argument of the provincial government that the population needs roads does not apply because the constitutional rights of the population are unaffected, nor is there any sacrifice of them because the case is not about the widening of the Vilgabamba-Ginara road, but about the respect for the constitutional rights of nature. In this particular case, actually, based on nature's rights in the Ecuadorian constitution, the claim was successful and nature won. In that particular case, the river had to be um, protected against any damage coming from the road widening project. This ultimately, of course, not only um, helped the environment, the animal and plant life were present in that case, but also the people living riverside um, in this particular river. To conclude... Arguably, all aspects of sustainable development are basically already incorporated in the vast body of international human rights and environmental protection law. The sustainable development goals could have relied, in fact, more explicitly on the existing governance system in place, particularly with regard to human rights protection. The problem with regard to sustainable development and human rights law is actually that the, interna that the international human rights law requires states basically to give precedence to humans over na nature. This leads to short-sighted trade-offs between the protection of human rights and the protection of the environment. A human right to environment or a human right to life in a healthy environment would mitigate such trade-offs. International efforts are actually promising, but not yet have not yet been successful. And there are a number of uh, national initiatives actually moving towards this end goal, with the extreme, of course, of the Latin American 
uh, introduction to a nature's rights into their constitution, but also, for instance, in Switzerland, a very recent initiative to extend uh, fundamental rights protection in the Swiss constitution to a uh, human right to life in a healthy environment. Depending on how such rights, such a right to uh, life in a healthy environment are actually defined and interpreted, they actually do have the potential of squaring the circle with regard to sustainable development by reconciling the economic, social and environmental dimensions of sustainable development. They can be guiding principles for the trade-offs between humans and nature, and they entail obligations to reconcile economic activity with the protection of labor and of the environment. Therewith, they are rendering the principle of intergenerational justice um, ultimately and suddenly enforceable, at least with regard to the environment. International Law and Sustainable Development Taught by me, Charlotte Siebergasser, at the University of Lucerne in spring term 2021.